turn in your copy of God's Word with me this morning to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. For many of you, that could catch you off guard this morning. We're not in the book of Matthew. We'll take a few weeks out of Matthew, actually. As this morning, we will be in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll be taking the Lord's Supper towards the end of our time together this morning. And we'll be in a few other places in God's Word over the next eight weeks before we resume our study of Matthew back in Matthew 8. Have you, ever, have you ever been to someone's house and you went there and you walked in and maybe you walked through the living room and you, you looked and you saw through their back windows perhaps or off their back porch or perhaps it was their front porch, you, you just looked out and were struck at how amazing of a view they have. You know, I, I, I'm thankful for our house, but no one's going to come to our house and go, wow, what a view, man, this is incredible, you know? Well, I never forget the first time I went to uh, my sister's house when she lived in Colorado Springs, and I was small, I think I was in elementary school, and, and I recall going in and, and walking in, we had gotten there, and of course had a, a great drive, and, and got in and put our stuff away, and I remember walking back out. And, you know, when you walk in, you're not, you're not really aware of what's behind you. But when I was in the house and we walked out the front door, what greeted you coming out of the front door was the Rocky Mountains highlighted by Pikes Peak. And I remember even as a child just kind of stopping and being amazed at how beautiful it was. This absolutely incredible span of mountains that as far as you could see with Pikes Peak towering above them all. But what I've learned in my life is that amazing things such as that can fall prey to familiarity. We, we can become so familiar with something that, that we kind of take it for granted and we don't think deeply upon it. We're not struck with amazement or awe when we see it. And that's, that's already where my sister and her husband were at the time. They hadn't lived there too long, but it was just like, oh, wow, you know, we're amazed. And they say, yeah, that's Pikes Peak. I mean, that, yeah, that's Pikes Peak. That's Pikes Peak, you know. It was beautiful, but they had come to a spot where they just kind of took for granted the scene that was out their front door, and I believe that the same thing can happen for us as Christians as we come to the Lord's Supper, something that is really a, a quite amazing and awe-inspiring, incredible moment of worship can become so familiar that we just approach it and we go about it and go through it without really thinking deeply upon what it is. And so this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper in a little bit, I want us to spend time in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul teaches in depth on the Lord's Supper. It's the only place in the New Testament outside of the Gospels where we have a lengthy teaching on the Lord's Supper. We have various references to it in other places, but, but this is in 1 Corinthians 11, and even some in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul deals with it extensively. And you might remember if you are a student of Acts and you, you've studied the book of Acts, you might remember that Paul planted the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He therefore had a, a great investment, a relationship with the church there, but it was a church that had fallen on some pretty difficult times. And those difficult times have fallen upon them, honestly, because of their own sin, their own rebellion, things that they had let come into the church. And so Paul writes multiple letters to the church at Corinth addressing these sins and, and calling them out and calling them back to faithfulness to the Lord. 
When we get into 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 12, 13, these are passages where Paul is talking about how does the body function together? How does the body live together and function in harmony? How has God placed the body together and gifted the body in various ways for the unity and the health of the body? He talks about the practices of the church, what the church does, how it carries out its life in the body, in the habits that it takes part, part in, and the worship that it leads. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, we have Paul addressing the Lord's Supper. And I want us to read this morning. It's a lengthy passage. And I will tell you, we're going to try to get through this passage as quickly as we can because it is lengthy. We can't hit everything in the passage today, but we'll try to hit what we need to hit to prepare us for our time taking the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, this passage can be broken up into three sections, and it's the sections that we'll deal with this morning, and perhaps your headings, if you're a note taker this morning, these will be your primary headings. The first section is the problem in Corinth from verses 17 down to 22. The second section we'll look at is the, the meaning and the significance of the Lord's Supper. That covers verses 23 down to 26. And then finally, we'll look at the importance of taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner in verses 27 to 34. Well, let's look first at the problem in Corinth. 
the problem in Corinth, this first section from 17 down to 22. You'll, you, you'll be well served to know that at this time in the church, the church was, would observe something called the love feast in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. So it looked a little different than what we do as, as we come and we gather and we're in here for worship and as a part of the worship service, we will take of the Lord's Supper of the bread and the, the cup. At that time, they carried out the love feast. And the love feast, if you want to read a little more about it, is in 2 Peter 2.13 and then also Jude verse 12 makes reference to this. In verse 17, what we have here in 1 Corinthians 11, we read Paul saying, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And that points back to verse 2. If you look at 11, 1 and 2, he says, Be imitators of me for as, I, or as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So he commends them for carrying out what he delivered to them, for being faithful to maintain the truths of the traditions that he had passed on to them. But when we come down to verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I don't commend you in, in what you're doing. I don't commend you in the, the way you're taking part in handling the Lord's Supper. And so he addresses them and confronts them in the fact that he cannot commend them in the way they are doing it. Yes, they are taking the Lord's Supper, but they're taking it in the wrong way. They're not taking it in the right way. And this serves for an immediate lesson for us is that, that there is a right way and a wrong way to worship the Lord. We can't just come in and do the Lord's Supper however we want to, make it look how we want to, how it feels good, how we think, hey, that's what it should look like. Jesus said that, but it would be really neat if we did this. I mean, it would be even more meaningful for us if we changed it a little bit. Well, that's wrong. That's not what we should do. It's not enough to just do something in worship. We need to do it the way we understand and see it revealed in Scripture. The ultimate problem we see here is that the taking of the Lord's Supper was not bringing unity to the body, but as it was causing division, it was causing disunity in the body. If you look there, he talks about in, in verse 18 that there are divisions among you. There are divisions among you. Well, how are these divisions occurring? The, the way the, the houses were set up in that day is more than likely what was going on. There was something called, called a triclinium. A triclinium would have been an upper room where perhaps the affluent would gather and they would gather and take part in the, the meal and then the Lord's Supper and then down below would be an atrium where others would gather. The atrium would be those who perhaps aren't as well off. And so evidently what's happening is they, they gather for the meal, probably the, the love feast, and as they gather for it, there are some in the triclinium and there are some in the atrium and they're taking it not in a way that is thoughtful of one another, not in a way that is caring of one another, but in a way that is selfish. Look at verse 21. In 21, he says when, uh, or verse 20, when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and a, another gets drunk. And so not only do you have a, a separation in the body, right? Not only do you have the affluent here and the, the, the poor, the less affluent below, but you have some that go and they, they say, hey, we've got our food, let's eat. And they go about eating and they, they fill themselves, they get drunk, high on wine. And, and as they do that, there are some who have no food. They're coming in hungry. And so instead of coming and caring for one another, they are in disregard to one another. They're being selfish and causing division. It says in verse 22, 
that they were looking down upon others. Verse 22 says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They were despising or looking down upon the church of God. They're not looking down upon a building here. He's not talking about the church as a building. When he looks and he says, you're looking down upon the church of God, he is talking about the people of God here. They're not just despising a a building. They're despising a people. And they're not just despising any people. They're despising the people of God. Later in verse 22, in the back end of it, it says that they were humiliating those who have nothing. They're humiliating those who have nothing. They weren't caring for them. They were putting them to shame. And this stands in, in stark contrast to what you would read if you, if you flipped over and you just jot down, look at it later at Acts 2, 42 to 47, where you have this really clear picture of the early church and what's going on and, and how they function together, how they related to one another. What you read there is you read that the believers were breaking bread together. They were taking of the Lord's Supper and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. So the ones who had nothing, the ones who had something, cared for them and did what it took to provide for them, show love for them. In the next chapter over in 1 Corinthians 12, we have the chapter where, where Paul's talking about the body and how every part of the body is important. Every part of the body has a role to play. Towards the end of 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 26, he writes this, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This attitude was void in the way they were taking the Lord's Supper. They were not taking the Lord's Supper in a way that cared for the suffering or rejoiced with those who were rejoicing. Listen, the implication that we have to take from this section, 17 to 22, is that one of the basic functions, one of the primary functions of the Lord's Supper is to build and maintain the unity of the body here at Grace. It should build and maintain the unity that God has given us in Christ. We don't get unity. We don't make unity. We have unity in Christ. But as we have that unity in Christ, we should build it and maintain it. And the Lord's Supper is vital in doing that. It's vital in doing that. If you just flip your, your Bible over one, one page to the left back into 1 Corinthians 10, if you look at verse 17, this is Paul's point. He talks about participation in the blood of Christ, participation in the body of Christ. In verse 17, he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread right? There's a a oneness, there's a unifying factor in taking of the Lord's Supper. It should be an expression of unity. You know what it's a reminder of? When we take of the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder that we all sin and we all need Christ. Yet it's also a reminder that as we take of it as believers, it's a reminder that not only do we all need Christ, do we not all need His grace, but it's a reminder also that we have all received His grace, that we have all been saved and been redeemed. So the Lord's Supper, when we come and we gather and we take of the Lord's Supper, when they were taking of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, it should not remind us of our differences, but it should remind us of our common need and our common Savior. It should unify us and build unity in 
the body. The second section there, verse 23 to 26. So we see the problem in Corinth that he addresses. And in verse 23 to 26, he he gives the meaning and the significance of the Lord's Supper. The the Lord's Supper is instituted in each of the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and and Luke. In in Matthew, in verse 20, or chapter 26, 26 to 29, we have the account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in, in Mark 14, 22 to 25, we have the account of Jesus doing the same. And then in Luke 22, 14 to 23, we have the same account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And when you read Paul's account here in verse 23 to 26, and you go back and look at those three, they all are the same in content. But when you look at Luke's and you look at Paul's, they parallel each other. And that just makes sense because you'll remember Luke and Paul spent a lot of time traveling together in the book of Acts in missions together. So Luke was a close companion with Paul. And so it would make sense that he would sound like and parallel Luke's account. And he says there in verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. What he's talking about there, the the words there, the words that are used of receiving something and passing it on. Something that was received was what he had been taught, what he had learned from the apostles, and we would understand and gather from the parallel and his relationship that it most likely came from Luke, and he has passed it on. It is something that the Lord had blessed him with through the apostles, and he is now passing it on to them. And so he goes on to say, this is what I received, I delivered it to you, and here's what it is. Here's the significance of the bread and the cup. Now, You might remember in Matthew, Mark, Luke, when the disciples gather, they're gathering for what? They're gathering for the Passover meal. Jesus even tells them, he says, oh, how long to sit and take this Passover with you. The Passover meal was a meal where the people of God, the Israelites, looked back and they remembered the the last of the plagues that God placed upon the Egyptians. This plague in particular was the death of the firstborn. And the way that God saved his people out of that was that the people were to sacrifice a lamb. And when they sacrificed this lamb, they were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to paint it on the the doorpost and the the upper mantle of the door so that all the frame of the door would be covered in blood. This is a vivid sight. I'll I'll never forget the moment. Some of you were with me on this. I, I don't remember which team it was, but I remember going into Peru, into a town where there were some things going on and it was a little twisted vision and and what they were doing was not right, but they had taken blood and they had painted it on the doorposts, the door frames of their doors of their homes going in to protect from evil spirits in that situation. But it was a gripping sight and it it was the first time I visually saw what's described in scripture, the, the Passover. In the Old Testament, they were doing that because when they painted that blood, Jesus said that that the Spirit of the Lord, that God said the Spirit of the Lord would pass over that house and the firstborn son would not perish. So the Israelites did that. So they gathered for Passover and they remembered the blood of the Lamb. Christ comes and at Passover, he says, this bread, is my body broken for you. This blood is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for you. When Jesus does this, he radically changes the Passover meal. 
so that we as Christians, we do not celebrate the Passover meal. We don't come together and take part in the Passover meal. Instead, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We don't look upon a lamb and put blood on our post or the the doorframe of our home. We don't do that. Whereas it, it looked upon the blood of a lamb that would remember and recall the way that God saved his people from slavery to the Egyptians. No, we look to Christ and we look to his blood. We look to the perfect lamb of God who was given for us, who redeemed us and saved us not from slavery to a people, but from slavery to sin. That's who we look upon with the Lord's Supper. And so when Jesus does this, we no longer look back to a lamb, but we look to Christ, the perfect lamb of God. Many of you in here, adults, you have been in Hebrews 9 and 10. I told Mike this morning, I said, it's really tempting after reading Hebrews 9 and 10 to get part of the way where we are right now. It's really tempting to just jump in and let's dig in in Hebrews 9 and 10 and we'll be out at like 2 or 3 o'clock today, but we won't do that. But if you remember adults, what you studied this morning, Hebrews 9 and 10, it is a beautiful, beautiful exposition and explanation of the significance of what Christ did in his sacrifice, in establishing a new covenant. But in Hebrews 9, verse 25 and 26, listen to what we read. Christ did not offer himself repeatedly as the high priest would have had to suffer or sorry, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. So the high priest would come in once a year and go into the Holy of Holies and he would come in and he would make a sacrifice and bring blood in, blood for the people and blood for his own sins, the sins of everyone. He was not spotless. He was not sin-free. He was not sinless. So he would come in repeatedly to enter the holy places year after year offering blood that's not his own. That's important. It's not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Christ would have had to do that. But as it is, as it is, Christ has appeared. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Himself. His own blood. So the Passover meal, in that moment, Jesus radically changes it, redefines it. Gives clarity to what is about to happen, looking forward to his looming crucifixion and his triumphant resurrection. So what does he say about the bread and the blood? What does he say? The bread. He says, the bread, this is my body, which is for you. We're back in 1 Corinthians 11. This is my body, which is for you. Listen, the death of Jesus is not symbolic. It's not this kind of spiritual thing. Now, the death of Jesus was real. It was bodily. It was physical. The Word made flesh, died, and experienced death. He really, truly died. He didn't merely die as an example. He didn't merely die to just show you what true love looks like and what real morality is. It's not just something that we go, oh, that's a great example now. I'm going to go and I'm going to live that same type of sacrificial life just because Jesus is a good example for me. No, he died for you. He didn't die because of any sin he committed. He died for you. This is my body, which is for you. It says we can't miss the significance of for you. 
We read all the way back in the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life. In Romans 5, 8, he says, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of what is first importance, paramount importance, primary importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins. He died for us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, what a, what a beautiful statement that he loved me and he gave himself for me. 1 John 2.2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. This is my body, Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 11. This is my body broken for you. Broken for you. He died for you. Not just to give you an example. Not to just have you have a nice story on Good Friday or something to think about for the Lord's Supper. He died for you in your place. Why? Why would he do that? It's because we could not save ourselves. We could not pay the debt we owed. Any deed that we might do is insufficient. Any righteousness that we might have is lacking. We were utterly and are utterly helpless. We are dead spiritually in our transgressions and in our sins. But thanks be to God, he died for us, for us. He was our substitute dying in our place for our sin. He was our propitiation, taking the wrath of God that we deserve. He was our ransom, paying the price for sin that we could not afford. He died for you, his body broken for you and for me. Thanks be to God for that. Now, what's the significance of the cup? What's the cup mean? He says the cup is the new covenant in my blood. You look there in, in 1 Corinthians 11, down in verse 25, he says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant. The, the old covenant was a covenant of, of, of law and of obedience. The new covenant is a covenant of grace and forgiveness through faith. And Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's thinking back, and we understand, we first hear the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, where Jeremiah, led by the Spirit of God, said this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them 
to the greatest, declares the Lord. Listen to this. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is a covenant of grace in Christ's blood. It's a covenant of forgiveness and mercy. And the blood of Christ was shed to establish this covenant with his people. It means that we are saved by faith in Christ. In the finished, complete, final, sufficient sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The pure and spotless Lamb of God. When he died on the cross, he died once and for all. Remember that from Hebrews. Once and for all. He doesn't come in and keep on dying over and over and over again. He dies once and for all. The idea of blood as a sacrifice, blood as a payment, dates all the way back to Leviticus 17 where the people were instructed why they should not eat the blood of an animal. The reason is in Leviticus 17, 11, God said the reason is, is because life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by life. The, the purpose of the blood is to make atonement, to cleanse, to sacrifice. And so now Jesus says the new covenant in my blood is established. We read in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we're reminded by Peter there. He says, you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot Hebrews 9 I told you I have a hard time staying out of Hebrews 9 but Hebrews 9 verse 15 listen to this you're talking about Christ establishing a new covenant in Hebrews 9 starting in verse 15 he's called the mediator of a new covenant he says this, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, and he's talking about here a will, not, not, not like a volition, not like the will to do something, but he's talking about a covenant where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. Since it is not in force, as long as the one made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus stands before his disciples and declares for all time that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm not leading a lamb out to sacrifice for you. I'm not going to ask you to go and find a firstborn prized possession lamb to sacrifice for your sins. And we're sure not going to do it year after year. Now Jesus says, I'm offering myself. It's my blood. <laughs> my blood. 
that is offered for you. Ephesians 1.7, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No, or for my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I've done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yes, indeed. How precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount. No other fount do we know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. New covenant is established in the blood of Christ. So what then is its significance? If that's the meaning, what then is the significance? Listen, we, we come and we gather today and we, we gather and we, we would say we do not believe and, and come alongside our friends in the Catholic Church that would say in the taking of the Lord's Supper that, that the very cup and the bread become the body and blood of Jesus. We do not believe that. Nor would we stand with Luther and say that in the taking of the, the cup and, and the bread that, the, the, that Jesus is there, comes physically, miraculously, is physically present. We, we wouldn't hold to either of those. What we would hold to and what we would understand, what we would look to looking at the scriptures, that we would see that the Lord's Supper is indeed an act of remembrance of what Christ did on the cross in our place for us to redeem us for salvation. And we would understand that it is a proclamation of his death, that it is proclaiming the gospel, the good news that he has died for sinners. We would say that we believe that the Lord's Supper along with baptism is one of the two ordinances of the church. And as such, it is something that we would describe as since it is God-ordained, that it is indeed a means of grace to the church. That through that, that God richly blesses the church. And we believe that in taking the Lord's Supper, that while Jesus is not physically present, he is indeed spiritually present in that moment. Just as he is when we come and we pray to him, we study the word that he is present because he is omnipresent. There is nowhere that God is not. And so we come to remember, we come to proclaim, we come to celebrate, and we come knowing that God is indeed present among us. And so we remember his sacrifice. We receive the spiritual blessings of God's grace in union with him as we draw near to him, and he increases our faith and pours out his blessings upon us. That's what we believe and hold to in the Lord's Supper and looking at 1 Corinthians 11, uh, chapter 10, and then in Matthew, Mark, Luke. So we understand from Scripture, specifically in 1 Corinthians 11, 
You'll note a couple things I said in there. You'll note that specifically in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul points out two things. One, remembrance, and two, proclamation, that it is the remembrance of our Lord's sacrifice. We see that twice when we're told to take the bread, do this in remembrance of me. And we're told to take the cup, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. So we observe the Lord's Supper in a few moments. We purposefully, we intentionally, we gratefully remember what Jesus did for us. What does that mean? What should we be remembering? We remember that the Son of God became the suffering servant. We remember that the sacrificial lamb that God provided was his own son. We remember that Jesus suffered for us. We remember that Jesus died that we might have life. We remember that Jesus gave his own life as a ransom for many. We remember that Jesus willingly, purposefully gave his life for his people. We remember that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for our salvation. We remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. He gave it for us. He died for us. We remember that Jesus shed blood, established the new covenant between us and God that is based on grace, based on grace and faith, bringing forgiveness and redemption of sins. So when we gather and we take the Lord's Supper in a moment, we remember the richness and the depth and the meaning and the value of the, Lord, of the body broken for us. The blood poured out for us. But not only do we remember, we proclaim. We proclaim. The beauty of the Lord's Supper is that it proclaims good news. It proclaims the gospel. He says, for as often, as verse 26 of chapter 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper has prophetic significance and weight. It shouts forth the good news. It proclaims, it declares the good news. So unbelievers, you are here today that you're, you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ. When you see this, it should proclaim to you that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners that you might be saved and have a relationship with God. The guilt that you are under, the guilt that you're under is removed by the blood of Christ and the call to trust him and to follow him. Lord's Supper proclaims Jesus' sacrificial death for sinners. So the final section there, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper in a few moments, verse 27 to 34, is the importance of taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. That if, if this is the weight and the meaning of the Lord's Supper, if it was significant enough for our Lord to pass on, to preserve in Scripture for all time. What's the importance of taking it? Surely we should take it in a manner worthy of its intended purpose. That's what Paul says. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner, he, listen, he doesn't say as an unworthy person. That's important. Because then none of us could take it. None of us are worthy people of it. But he says, any of us who eats and drinks a cup in an unworthy manner, the way you go about doing it, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. He's simply meaning guilty of sin. You'll be in sin before God, despising Christ. So verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what does that mean? What does it mean to take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? I, I would just... Say, so just explain that maybe in four brief points. 
One, I would say it's taking it flippantly with little regard for what Jesus did. That you would just sit in here and it comes around and you just take it. You don't even think about it. You're thinking about what Susie's wearing. Or you're thinking about what Bob's cooking. Or you're thinking about going kayaking this afternoon or watching the ball game. Oh, yeah, the Lord's Supper is in there too. No, to flippantly take it would be in an unworthy manner. We are to be doing it in remembrance of him. The second way, I think, taking it in an unworthy manner would be taking it in a way that brings disunity to the body instead of unity. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11. Right? Are we doing it in a way that causes disunity among us? It should be in a way that brings unity. So we must not do it in a way that elevates anyone, makes anyone more special than the other. It should be, again, that we come together and we come together as people with many differences, many different backgrounds, many struggles, many battles with sin. But we all come with a common need and a common Savior as believers. And so it unifies us. Third, unworthy manner would be to take it in disregard to your own sin and need for Christ. Just totally disregarding the fact that, that I'm a sinner. And when we take the Lord's Supper, every time we take it, it should remind us of our need for Christ. That we may look great on the outside, we may be intellectual, we may look like we've got it all together, we may be talented, we may be athletic, we may be successful in business, we have a nice family, great cars, look nice today, come to church all the time, but it should remind us that underneath all that is sin, and we need Christ, we need forgiveness that is only available through His blood. Fourth, I would say that is taking it when there's brokenness between you and another person in the family of God. That there's disunity, there's brokenness. A brother has something against you, you have something against a brother, and you just go, eh, I'm just going to forget it. Although you don't forget it, you're harboring bitterness. You don't sit by them. You don't talk to them. You avoid them in the halls. Slander them in public. Gossip about them. That would be in a manner unworthy. See, Jesus instructed us, you remember our study in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23 to 24, he talked about when you come to offer a gift, if your brother has something against you, to go to him first. Go to him first before that. As we reflect, as we examine ourselves, we should consider those things. And we should seek to take it in a manner worthy of what it is and who it represents, Jesus Christ. And the final question I think comes up then at this point is who do we believe should take the Lord's Supper? Who then should take it? I would say this statement would summarize that believers who are in good standing with their local church. Believers who are in good standing with their local church. Let's break that down quickly and then we'll move into worship and taking the Lord's Supper. First, we understand that the Lord's Supper is for believers. This is not something for an unbeliever. In Scripture, we see Jesus leading believers to partake of the Lord's Supper. We see him saying, do this in remembrance of me. We think back upon what he did for us. It is something that believers do. 
And so that means that an unbeliever, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, we would encourage you to watch and consider, think about the meaning of the elements, the bread, the cup, think about the meaning of the scriptures behind it. Think about how it proclaims the gospel to you. It's for believers. But it's also for believers in good standing. Believers in good standing. If, if you're under church discipline for some reason or you're living in unrepentant sin or you're actively doing something to bring disunity or harm to the body of Christ, then you should not take it. Why? Because all of those things are counter to everything that the Lord's Supper is about, everything that it signifies, everything that it is based upon and calls us to remember. So if you're an unbeliever or you're a believer not in good standing, you're not living for the Lord, you're living in sin, then you should not take it. And finally, believers in good standing with their local church. Some of you who know your terminology and think about different attitudes or different approaches to the Lord's Supper would understand what I say when I say open communion or closed communion. You've heard those terms. There's a, many churches that would say it's only for the members of our local church that can take it. So if you're not a member of grace, you cannot take it. Some churches, just, they just do it and don't even worry about it. Just whoever wants to take it, take it. I, I, I would say that where we are, I don't know there's an official term for this, but I would say however, whatever makes you feel better, I guess, I don't know. You could call it graciously closed or cautiously open. Either way. Graciously closed or cautiously open, whichever one you like. What that means, and the way I would describe that, is that we do not limit this time only for members of Grace Baptist Church. And the reason that we do not do that is that we don't believe that the Lord just gave it to us. We believe he gave it to the body of Christ as a whole, the church, universal church. And we recognize that even this morning, we have people from literally all over the globe that are believers. We have a dear pastor from Peru with us this morning. And we believe that he can observe the Lord's Supper with us this morning because he's a part of the body of Christ. And we recognize that it is an observance of the universal church. And we would invite you to partake of it if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you meet the first standards. A, you're a believer follower of Christ, and B, you're in good standing in your local church. We would invite you to take of it with us. So the Lord's Supper, something that is more astounding and amazing than Pike's Peak, that we must not let fall prey to familiarity. We're going to pray. After we pray, we're going to sing the communion hymn. We're going to worship and reflect, and I want you to think deeply on these four verses and what we're singing. After we sing the communion hymn, we will observe the Lord's Supper, and then we will end in celebration because the Lord's Supper not only looks back on what Christ did, but it looks forward. It looks forward to the great, great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate as we end today. We will feast in the house of Zion. Let's pray together. Father, we bow, and God, we are thankful, Lord, for your grace in our lives. God, we're thankful 
specifically this morning, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice that you died for us. You gave your body for us. Oh God, we worship you and we praise you for that this morning. We thank you for your blood that is the new covenant. God, I pray that as we sing, God, there are some in here who just need to examine themselves, examine their own lives, consider their standing before you, consider their walk with you. God, there are some here who are unbelievers that need to consider the picture of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the the wonder and amazing truth that you came, the very Son of God, and you gave your life for us. So God, I pray for unbelievers, I pray that they would look to you in faith, that they would turn from sin and trust you this morning. And God, I pray that we who are believers, that God, we would remember your great sacrifice this morning, that you would bless this time as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.